0: We're talking about it This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son Major Tom McKay is on the board While booking the guests in the legendary CHML Newsroom Dave Wadhard and Jennifer McQueen Here Scott Thompson
0: Can we not get that fixed? Do we not have the budget to get that fixed? Can we not? What do you do? It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what do we got going on? Uh, Bonnie Crombie, who was who is still really the mayor of Mississauga, but has now been elected leader of the liberal, the provincial liberal party. So uh, she'll be representing the provincial liberals uh, come. Uh, uh, well, I guess as soon as she uh, gets a seat and such as leader and, and then, uh, you know, it, it's on, I guess, within the next two years. There'll be an election of some sort provincially uh, once uh, uh, the premier runs his term out and uh, Bonnie Crombie will be there representing uh, the liberals. And it was interesting. And we'll get some pieces, some clips for you uh, from the news conference. But I was listening to it earlier on today and you can already see that <laughs> going on. And um, what was the quote? Hey, uh, um uh, they want you to be talking about me and their attack ads. That's what Bonnie Crombie uh, said in regard to Doug Ford. So when you think about it, you get Doug Ford and you get Bonnie Crombie who could certainly hold her own and Merritt Stiles who is capable of doing the same altogether. It's going to be quite a feisty uh, time in the ledge. So, you know, all that's good for media. But at the end of the day, whether anything gets accomplished or moves forward, it'll be interesting uh, to see because although Bonnie Crombie uh, obviously is a very strong leader, um, uh, engaging uh, a figure as well, and certainly well-known, but, you know, took the third ballot to win, so... Again, there's some division within the Liberal Party of exactly what direction it's going to go in. And as we've seen with the prime minister going, taking the Liberal Party more to the extreme left and joining with the NDP. uh you know, in in many situations, the party is a little divided on her stance, which has a tendency to be center left. Um, which I think is good news for everybody. Uh, but that being said, uh, but I, I don't think the issue will be whether Bonnie Crombie can handle her own in the legislature, uh, along with Merritt Stiles and Doug Ford. I think she's perfectly capable of doing that uh, and has the uh, the charisma to do that. I, I think it'll be much like with the NDP. What are you doing for us now? What's the policy? What are Are, are they relating to the kitchen table issues that are – uh, concerning, uh, the family. And, and, and instead, you know, we're hearing back and forth of this person's that, that person's this and such and and so on and so forth. So I, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I'm not sure the, the leaders or the personalities can necessarily, uh, win this. I think at the end of the day, you've got to come up with some sort of policy, uh, that makes people forget about the McGinty and Win days, uh, where uh, you know, again, especially with with uh, Premier Win, the, the party went uh, again, further left than than left of center. So it'll be fascinating to see where that goes. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge for uh, Bonnie Crombie. I, I think she can certainly hold her own in a debate or uh, you know, in the public uh, light, that sort of thing. And again, much like the leader of the NDP, they're all prominent figures. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it, it's going to be, well, what's different now? What's different now? What what can you bring to the table uh, that hasn't already been brought uh, by your predecessors? So it'll be fascinating to see where that all goes and how it moves forward. But, um, you know, uh, popular personality so automatically, uh, you know, uh, moves to the front of the room when it comes to a leadership convention. But again, uh, this was a party that uh, still does not have official party status. Uh, because they don't have uh, enough elected members. Also, um, not being really uh, uh, efficient in raising funds to get this message, whatever it is, across. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see as this all moves forward. But um, again, I I don't think that the... The spotlight will be on her personally, um, uh, that much at all. I think she can command that spotlight, she can command that atten- attention. She will get the media's attention anyway. Uh, what it'll come down to is what is the party bringing to the table? What does the party stand for? How is the party different now than it was, uh, you know, during the last 15 years of liberal rule when uh, McGinty and Wynne were in power? So, and again, that's a lot of the time when uh, there wasn't a lot of building being built there wasn't a lot of housing being built and you know we know these issues are 5 10 15 20 25 years old so uh it'll be fascinating to see how she separates herself cuz and again the other issue is is to me she appears a bit more center left than to the extreme left and you know agrees on on many of the things that Doug Ford does so again how is that going to play how is she going to differentiate between uh, the center and center left, center right, or uh, again, will there be pressure within the within her own party uh, to keep taking the party farther left towards uh, the NDP and choosing to further push the NDP out and take those seats as opposed to actually coming back to the center and trying to carve yourself out, uh, you know, some sort of some sort of following there. It'll be fascinating to see uh, over time, and uh, the legislature certainly will not be dull. All right, what is it going to be like? Uh, you know. As we approach, uh, no, I guess we're into December now, the first week of, approach Christmas and the holiday season. Uh, Soon there'll be chatter of will it be a white Christmas or not. Uh, But at this point, uh, the models are out, and we sort of get a rough idea of what the winter will look like. Uh, Well, sort of, anyway. Uh, Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. He is with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Hope uh, you are as well. So far, so good, Anthony. Before we get into uh, the projections and the thoughts for uh, uh, this winter and such, what about AI and weather? How much can that be used to help you do what you do? I've uh, I've seen a couple of articles on this.
2: Yeah, and and it is uh, a tool that I think in the next few years will be used more as far as uh, meteorologists go across the country, across uh, the globe. Right now, it's still in an experimental mode. So what we do is we We maybe look at some of those models, see how they compare and differ to the ones that we traditionally use. And then we use that information going forward. So it is definitely an exciting time in our field. And uh, AI, I think a lot of the modeling now is actually using um, other models to predict the future. So they're basically Mm -hmm. looking back at the past to predict what uh, is to come based on similar criteria in other years. So in the case of, ocean temperatures or maybe the jet stream looking the way it does other times that that occurred maybe there was a big snowstorm four days down the road so that's where ai has been really helpful and i think it's going to continue to be a a, a great tool for us going forward
0: but like you said anthony in a sense uh it's already there that's what you've been doing it's just you used to do it manually now it'll be done for you or if it ever gets to that stage
2: Yeah. I mean, when you make a winter forecast and you're looking back, what we call analogs, years Mm -hmm. that have similar conditions, whether it's El Nino, La Nina, or uh, maybe where you are in a solar cycle, uh, all of that plays a role. And it it often involves hours and days of research and you can never get it completely right. Uh, But now if you have these, uh, these AI computers that can basically compute what typically would be a school bus sized computer. They can do it on a much smaller scale and more cost effective. When we talk about the major computer models that we use, they're often uh, subsidized or completely run by governments because they're just so large and and so uh, cost prohibitive for the average company or, or person.
0: And, of course, we'll always need uh, the human touch such as yours to decode it all either way because whatever goes in, you know, let's say garbage in, garbage out. So it always needs the human touch. So give us that human touch, Anthony. What are you projecting for the winter?
2: Well, I mentioned uh, El Nino. I think that is going to take uh, center stage. It is um, warm water in the Pacific, more in the eastern and central Pacific. And that makes a difference. If it's centered in the middle of the Pacific, then sometimes the effects around Canada can be different than one that would be right off the coast of Central South America. So uh, with a more central uh, Pacific uh, El Nino, I do think there is opportunity for some cold as we get into January and early February. Uh, But for the month of December, it looks mild, basically coast to coast. And overall, I do think winter ends up warmer than normal for a big chunk of Canada. That's not to say there can't be snow, and there definitely will be. And uh, it's a lot of back and forth that we're now pretty used to with, with the winters we've had lately.
0: You know, we have been hearing that it will be later to start this year, but you are, uh, I guess, as a result, the farther you go into winter and have uh, warmer temperatures, uh, the milder the winter will look, uh, obviously, with data and such. But are you predicting that it probably will be less of a winter, if I can use that term, uh, this year?
2: Yeah, I I definitely think so. I think we have below-seasonal snowfall for much of western Canada, very mild temperatures there, Uh, the Great Lakes, less snow. Uh, and it comes probably in, in bouts where you see maybe one, two, or three storms in a two-week period, and then it it just it disappears. The snow melts, and we see a, a milder spring pattern set in. So uh, a lot of back and forth, And but overall, I do think it's a lesser winter, typical of El Nino's. Uh, you also have to watch out because sometimes you can get these sneaky ice storms in an El Nino winter. Mm. And that's something, especially later on, we'll be watching for around around here.
0: Uh, obviously, living in the climate we do, we know what frost is like and, and what happens after it sets in. Uh, and and obviously, after a snowfall, if the ground is hard and, and frosty, the snow actually uh, obviously stays and, and doesn't melt away. Are we going to see less of a frost uh, earlier on in the season?
2: Well, I mean, it's been mild. We've already had our frost, so the growing season is over. We haven't had the deep freeze that tends to disrupt some of the pipes and create the potholes. That's still a ways away, although uh, just in my little crystal ball, I'm looking at this weekend. We've got mild, maybe 10-degree highs, and then uh, a system comes through. We get rains, maybe switching to snow and wind. So every week that passes, you're more likely to have Colder conditions, and what we haven't seen yet is that big buildup over the Arctic of, of brutally cold air, often with the polar vortex that can sometimes get displaced south. That hasn't happened yet. I don't see it for the month of December, but we'll be watching right around the holidays, I think, is when we could start turning colder and then uh, January may actually end up colder than than seasonal around here.
0: All right, Anthony. So that sets up the next question. Is it too early to predict whether it's going to be a white Christmas or not? I remember I think last year uh, there was snow and then rain by, by New Year's. It was very bizarre. Uh, so yeah. wh- what are you looking at this season?
2: Yeah. I mean, even if you, you get a big winter storm this weekend, I'm not predicting that, but even if that happened, it's just too early. Maintaining yeah. that snowpack for three weeks in December around here in this climate uh, just doesn't happen very often. So what you need is uh, that snow to arrive a couple of days before, and then it stays cold. Uh, and that's just uh, in the day-to-day stuff is is too hard to predict. Uh, I will say uh The odds are not in our favor for a a white Mm. Christmas this year, but it will come down to just uh, a week ahead of time saying, "Okay, is there that one storm that's going to do it? Uh, And then we'll have to just wait and see.
0: Anthony Farnell with us, chief meteorologist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. uh, Looking ahead to the Christmas season and beyond. Anthony, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. All right, let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, uh, has an interesting column in regard to uh, the carbon tax and where do we go from here. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director here now. Franco, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey,
3: thanks for having me on this afternoon.
0: Uh, before we get to this, uh, the most recent news, obviously cuts coming down from the CBC uh, as far as job loss and such, which nobody likes to see. Uh, but your thoughts on this and in a fascinating tweet that I saw that uh, where a, a CBC, a well-known CBC uh, newscaster is actually questioning the head of the CBC on this and whether they still will be paying uh, hefty bonuses this year. And she wouldn't commit uh, that is the person that runs the CBC would not commit to to not honoring or or giving bonuses while they were uh, cutting so many employees. What are your thoughts on this?
3: Oh, it's brutal. Hey, could you imagine being someone who is finding out that you're losing your job a couple weeks before Christmas and then seeing the president and CEO of the CBC, Catherine Tate on TV being asked like, Hey boss, um, maybe we should give up the bonuses this year when you're when hundreds of people may be losing their jobs. And the boss essentially said no comment, couldn't commit to the fact that they may not be ending the bonuses. So they may be, you know, canceling hundreds of jobs, but they can't even cancel a bonus. Now, remember, folks, all of this comes to light because the Canadian Taxpayers Federation filed access to information requests. And we found out that the CBC handed out $16 million in bonuses last year paid for by the taxpayer. $99 million in bonuses since 2015. Also, of course, paid for by the taxpayer. And it gets a little bit worse, folks. Stay with me here for a second. CBC CEO and President Catherine Tate, her annual compensation is between $470,000 and $620,000. She could also be eligible for a bonus. So look, I think you got to go after the fat cats before you go after the little cat. And I think that means the CBC must do what's right and end those bonuses.
0: Um, how do the liberals square this circle? Obviously, they're great defenders of the CBC and such. Uh, and this is all coming under their reign. How, how do they, especially when you think of the state that journalism is in right now, uh, the the debates and arguments with, with social media companies and such, uh, how do they square this circle?
3: Well, how do they square the circle that the CBC might be handing out bonuses? I don't think they can. Hmm. I don't think they can. I mean, look, the problem is, is that here's the here's the rule in Ottawa: rewarding failure with taxpayer funded bonuses, right? I mean, essentially, if you show up to work twice a day with your shoes ties, you're getting you're getting a bonus. If you're in hmm. Ottawa, you know what I mean? Okay. The feds have handed out what 1.3 billion dollars in bonuses since 2015, despite the departments failing to meet half of their own performance targets. You have crown corporations like the CBC, as we just mentioned, 16 million in bonuses last year, 99 million in bonuses since 2015. The president's CEO can't even say if she will end the bonuses while laying off or while potentially hundreds of people lose their jobs. But then you also have the Bank of Canada, millions in dollars in bonuses, even though they fail to keep inflation under control. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, Millions of dollars in bonuses, even when Canadians can't afford a home. The problem is, is that our politicians who are supposed to be protecting the public purse are essentially just letting these bureaucrats and bonuses run wild in Ottawa.
0: How do we, how do we fix this? What are your thoughts regarding the CBC?
3: Well, I mean, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, look, step number one is end the bonuses, right? End the bonuses. Stop the bonuses. They don't need the bonuses. Um, but the CTF, I mean, we're very squarely on the record of defunding the CBC. We don't think that taxpayers' money should be going to the CBC. But I think, look, I think even if you support the CBC, I think no matter where you fall on this debate, because it's a good debate to have, wherever you fall in this debate, I think like everyone kind of recognizes that while hundreds of people may be out of, out of a job, maybe it's time for the execs and the fat cats to give up their bonus this year, right? I think all Canadians can probably agree on that.
0: All right, let's talk about uh, your latest column, Carbon Tax, Not carve Out, Trudeau's uh, Real Failure. Um, are, are you surprised that they made this move with Atlantic Canada and, and didn't give it further thought as to how it would resonate with other Canadians and other parts of the country?
3: Well, look, I mean, it should have been pretty obvious that when you give carbon tax relief essentially to favor Atlanta, Canada, while you have some MPs out there essentially revolting, that is going to look pretty bad to the rest of Canadians, right? It's going to look pretty bad to those liberal members of parliament who are in Ontario or Manitoba or Alberta or British Columbia, right? Because it's going to make those liberal MPs look pretty weak. I mean, they do look pretty weak now, especially those liberals, like I said, in Ontario and in Western Canada who aren't willing to speak up for their own constituents like their colleagues did in Atlanta, Canada. So, I mean, look, I wish I was a bug on the room. I wish I was a fly on the wall listening to the conversations because I bet it was pretty bad. I bet there were some pretty big threats in there uh, that led to this carbon tax carve-out. But you know what? I argue that the carbon tax carve-out wasn't the big mistake. The fundamental mistake from Mr. Trudeau is the carbon tax itself because the carbon tax does not help the environment The vast majority of countries do not have a national carbon tax. So essentially, Trudeau is trying to sell Canadians the myth that somehow making it more expensive just to live in Canada is going to help reduce emissions in places like China, India, Russia or the United States. But obvious reality shows that that cannot be the case.
0: Do you think this draws with this carve out and in the story it's become, do you think this draws more attention to the flaws in the carbon tax? And again, it's lack of actually doing what it was set to do.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, even the fact that we're having the conversation on this show right now, right? Let's look at all the ways that the carbon tax has had missteps. Okay, remember before the 2019 election, then Environment Minister Catherine McKenna said the government would had no intention of raising the carbon tax beyond 11 cents a liter. Well, today the carbon tax is 14 cents per liter of gas, and it's going all the way up to 37 cents per liter of gas. You continue to hear ministers say people get more money back in rebates than what they yeah. pay. Except that's not the case. The PBO shows that the carbon tax is costing the average family hundreds of dollars more than what they get back in rebates. And here's the doozy, folks. Quebec is getting a special deal on the carbon tax as well. You're paying two cents per liter more in Trudeau's carbon tax than in Quebec. And by 2030, you'll be paying 14 cents per liter more in gas in Trudeau's carbon tax than what Quebec's paying. So this carbon tax honestly has more holes in it than Swiss cheese does.
0: How has the U.S. managed to reduce emissions without a carbon tax?
3: Well, it's, but look, it's not just the U.S. that's doing this, right? The U.S. is actually the rule, not the exception, right? So so what do we have now? We have a Democrat administration, Mr. Joe Biden. He hasn't imposed a carbon tax. Good luck selling a carbon tax to a Republican president, right? Good luck with that. But look, the fact is that the U.S. is actually um, in the majority here. Because about 75% of countries don't have a national carbon tax. Canadians are now paying two carbon taxes, by the way. The second one came in on Canada Day of this year. So if you look around the world, Canada is the exception, where we have not one but two carbon taxes. And about three quarters of the countries out there don't have a carbon tax. Now, where the carbon tax is fatally flawed is that it's taxing the necessities of life. We have to heat our homes. We have to drive. We have to eat food. People can't just scale back on those things. And that's one of the fatal flaws of the carbon tax.
0: Franco Tarasano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, federal director talking about the carbon tax and the cutbacks, uh, the cuts at CBC. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: We have talked a lot about EVs and uh, moving forward and the transition into more renewable energy. Fascinating uh, article in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Canada must do more to connect the electric vehicle supply chain uh, industry. Executive say, I'm just going to read you a little bit about, uh, uh, about from this article. Uh, Canadian ambition to be a force in the EV industry could be driven off course by insufficient support for key segments within the supply chain including critical mineral processing or a lack of strategy to attract capital with incentives from government senior executives say Canada must develop its own long-term blueprint incorporating the minerals used in batteries and other components right through to assembly of vehicles and developing charging networks according to a survey of sector leaders um, that have uh, been asked such so let's bring in Brian Kingston president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association he is here now Brian thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on. Great to join you.
0: Uh, Brian, this is always a fascinating conversation because everybody's interested in EVs, everybody's interested in saving the planet, and then we start to talk about what we're actually going to do to build them. Uh, You probably hear more of this on the provincial level, uh, especially in Ontario when it comes to assembly of vehicles and such. Uh, Many have talked about being involved in every part of this supply chain, which is, I believe, what this article is about. But is the conversation about minerals and and mining and such, which are key components and parts of this discussion, is it as attractive as the unveiling of an EV plant itself?
4: No, it's it's not. And unfortunately, we have a lot of catching up to do on the supply chain side of things. We've had a lot of success in the early days of this transformation with automakers announcing over $30 billion in new investment here in Canada. Much of that is dedicated to Ontario. And we're seeing auto facilities transitioning to electrification. We've also had announcements into things like cathode anode manufacturing, which is fantastic news for Canada. But if we wanna really take advantage of the economic opportunity here, we have to build out the mining supply chain. And right now we're still have a lot of work to do, including on improving the speed of permitting processes for new mines.
0: Uh, At the end of the day, will it be as hard to open a mine as it was to drill an oil well? Because many of the same concerns uh, with fossil fuels are are prevalent in in any mining industry. And environmentalists aren't aren't excited about that. How do you balance this?
4: This is one of the, the big challenges. This transformation is going to depend on an unprecedented ramp up in global mining. By some estimates, we're talking about 384 new mines that need to come online over the next decade to support battery manufacturing. But of course, with that comes an environmental footprint, the need for new transportation, infrastructure and major, major investments. So uh, if we're going to move to an electrified fleet, we have to find a way to responsibly, but also quickly develop this mining capacity so that the industry will have the inputs it needs to build these vehicles.
0: Are politicians willing to have this discussion um, uh, and, and talk about what is needed in order to do exactly what you're talking about? Or would they rather just quietly buy those products offshore from uh, you know dirtier producers?
4: Well, if you look at what's happening in the United States, that discussion has been had. The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act puts in place very clear sourcing requirements for critical minerals. And good news for Canada is that we are considered an allied partner of the United States and a preferred source for these mineral inputs. So automakers will be sourcing from friendly countries that have been identified in the Inflation Reduction Act. But again, The Americans will not wait for Canada to develop its mines and approve its permitting processes and speed everything up. They will find other sources if other sources can come online more quickly. So we're on the clock here right now, and the economic opportunity is huge, but I am a little bit worried that we're not moving with the speed necessary to take advantage of this opportunity.
0: Uh, We all know that electrification comes with its cost. How does this plan sit with our current environment minister, the idea of opening more mines?
4: Well, we have seen uh, concerns raised around things like the ring of fire, for example. Um, And, you know, that's a challenge because that is a key area in Canada where we have a whole range of minerals that are going to be used in batteries. But to access those minerals, we need road. We need electricity lines going into remote parts of Ontario. And this all has to happen with relative speed. So uh, I think there are some hard conversations to be had here to make sure that we can find a path forward. Um, But right now, again, you're looking at 12 to 15 years for a mining project to be approved in this country. That's not gonna cut it, given that the federal government is about to announce a new regulation that will require 100% electric vehicle sales by 2035. That is only 12 years away. We've got to get moving.
0: Uh, on the ring of fire, we've had experts on this show that say it will never be built. Uh, what are your thoughts?
4: Well, I, sh- I sure hope they're wrong um, because uh, there's huge, huge benefit here to Canada if we can get it built. But you know, I think what a lot of the experts are, are seeing is just the fact that this is going to require a massive amount of infrastructure. This is not an easy to access place. Um, as well as um, proper consultation with First Nations that needs to occur, there's a lot of work that has to go into developing this. Um, and I, I think that's what probably is um, leading to some pessimism around the ability to actually get this up and running.
0: I only have a few seconds left, Brian. What message would you say to environmentalists, extreme environmentalists who are against mining?
4: Look, we've got to we've got to build these mines. This transformation, if we're going to reduce our transportation emissions and and drive electric, mining is critical to it. So uh, they'll have to get on board and accept that this is going to be part of the solution to reducing our emissions.
0: Brian Kingston with us, president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association on what Canada must, must do in order to continue along the EV supply chain. Brian, thanks for the time and insight. Fascinating, be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
5: delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
5: Just curious about something. I'm going to presume no bonuses this year. I mean, the Canadian Taxpayer Federation said a Freedom of Information request showed 16 million were paid in bonuses in 2022. Can we establish that that is not happening this year? it's too early to say where we are for for this year we'll be looking at that like we do all our line items in the coming months so there's a there's a chance bonuses could still happen at a time when jobs are being cut I, again, I, I'm not going to comment on something that hasn't been discussed at this point. So
0: That is uh, CBC anchor Adrian Arsenal questioning uh, CBC president Catherine Tate, who many have said is uh, just in her own bubble, unaware of what is going on. But boy, you got to you got to give kudos to the anchor for getting your boss on the air and then asking uh, why bonuses are going to be paid uh, if people are getting laid off. This on the heels of the story, CBC Radio Canada to cut 10% of its workforce uh, as it uh, faces budget shortfalls. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, and is here now. Uh, Jeff, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks so much. What do you? What are your thoughts on the CBC anchor calling her uh, boss uh, 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 out on on live on TV? That takes some cahoonies.
6: Well, that's that's what good journalists do, and she's yeah. an excellent journalist. Yeah. Um, just in all fairness, let me identify myself as a former inmate at the CBC for 21 years <laughs> uh, before before I left to go to NPR. Uh, but that being said. I I think that the CBC now is faced with uh, if the if present trends continue they will probably just keep going the way they've been going and that would be in my opinion a big mistake. I think what they need to do now is to rethink the purpose of a public broadcaster in a digital age. And that means doing more, but with less. And how do you do that? And I'll, I'll briefly tell you what I did when I got to NPR sure. uh, in Washington uh, in the late 90s. It was clear that NPR was doing too much. It didn't have the money to do everything it was doing to do it properly. So uh, we asked the stations, because in, in the in the States, NPR is really owned and run by the stations. It's not a network. And they said, well, just give us the best news and information you can, because we can handle all the other stuff, music and drama and comedy, et cetera, and, and local current affairs at the station level. So we bailed out of all of the other things that we were doing, except for news and information. And we provided uh, a tremendous service to American listeners and tripled the ratings in five years. And it's it stayed that way. Uh, it continues to grow. What the CBC needs to do, in my opinion, is use this as an opportunity to make some tough choices, which they've never really had to do because they are overextended in terms of what they think their mandate is. The federal government has to recalibrate the Broadcasting Act and give Better March a clearer marching orders to the CBC as to what it can do. And what it shouldn't be doing is carrying ads. Now, there are no ads on the radio uh, because we don't want to compete with you, but, or or the CBC doesn't want to compete with you, not we. Uh, But certainly television needs to stop running ads and put locate itself in a more effective role inside the media landscape in Canada.
0: Who is responsible for that task? Is it the government of the day? Is it uh, the head of the CBC? Because obviously this sort of seems like turning the Titanic because we've got an old template there uh, that you remember working with that obviously needs to adapt to a digital age.
6: Correct. And I think what has to happen, the CBC management, uh, as we saw from that interview with Catherine Tate, is not really interested in changing anything. Um, They will they'll cut a little here and a little there, but they'll basically continue as they have been because they think that their role senior management thinks that their role is basically to be an entertainment vehicle, not an information providing vehicle. And that has their 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 glowing success of Schitt's Creek and a couple of other TV shows, Mm. which they can sell to the Americans, is what they're counting on. And I think that the government, the federal government, and it has to be done quickly before this government changes. And then, then a whole new set of issues emerges with the conservatives. But right now, the federal government has to launch a rapid, effective, quick consultation process come up with a plan of action that says here's what cbc english television needs to be doing because it's really english television that's the problem it's not radio and it's not radio canada
0: uh it's easy to blame the ruling government uh and 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 this president has been very local uh, vocal rather about the opposition so how how who takes the reins here uh because clearly they seem to be singing from the same playbook
6: Well, I think uh, the CBC could show some leadership in senior management and say, here's what we want to do to change and better serve Canadians, but they're not going to do that. So I think that in lieu of that vacuum uh, of leadership and of ideas, uh, the federal government has to step in. The minister has to say, "Okay, you've got three months to come up with a plan. That, to me, is the logical way to proceed. It'll be tough. It's always sad when jobs are lost. I'm not minimizing that. But at the same time, you cannot operate what's basically an an analog service in a digital age. More change has to happen.
0: What happens, Jeff, when a group of academics such as yourself sell something like this to the CBC? I mean, do they understand that? Do they move forward with that? Because again, it's not like it's not affecting every media.
6: Well, I think there's some, um, I have to say we've made a little progress in getting people to sit down, think and listen and and kind of agree with a number of the ideas that the group I've been working with, which we call Public Broadcasting in Canada for the 21st Century, uh, PBC 21. We've encountered some really encouraging uh, hints from inside the CBC that this is a really effective way to proceed but not at the upper management level. They they are still resistant to change because it would mean that they would have to admit that they failed. Hmm. But they have failed, and that's the problem.
0: Jeffrey Borkin with a senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Always fascinating, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Cheers. 900 CHML, it's Hamilton today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
5: The Premier and I don't agree on a lot of things. But we do agree on dissolution of the region of Peel. He has made it his mandate to cut red tape and eliminate duplication and all those great things, uh, eliminate waste duplication and cut red tape. And this is precisely what the dissolution of Peel does.
0: That is, of course, uh, Mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, now newly elected leader of the Liberal Party, uh, talking about uh, her relationship with the Premier, which seems to be, uh, depending on who you ask, either this or that, it's going to be fascinating. to watch and with Merritt Stiles uh, uh, leading the NDP it certainly will be uh, feisty in the legislature to say the least let's bring in Wayne Petrosi Professor Emeritus, Politics Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University and here now Wayne thank you for the time, hope you're well I am and thank you very much what do you think we're going to see here, Wayne? I mean, uh, it, it seems at times they're uh, they're each uh, each other's enemy. Then at times they're agreeing together. Are we going to see Bonnie Crombie bring this party more to left of center? Do you think?
7: No, I, I suspect what we're first of all what we're going to see is a lot more media attention now focused on her now that she's been elected leader, and what they uh, what they make of that, how that what issues arise from that. That, that could be telling to the prospects of her, of her leadership. I think the other thing we, we, can, we can look to is she's, she's going to have to find herself a seat because after that honeymoon period of all the media attention and people to talking about what's it like to be the leader and this and that and winding down of her duties as mayor in Mississauga, she's, she's going to have to face the challenge of trying to keep herself front and center without having a seat. And uh, that may end up, as she, and she's already intimated this. She uh, she may very well end up running somewhere like in southwestern Ontario. Apparently, I think a, a seat in the Chatham area uh, nice. is, is uh, has been vacated when the, a conservative minister resigned to take a, a position in the private sector. And and whether when the premier calls an election, Bonnie Crombie's going to have a decision to make. Does she wait around for three years, hoping something opens up in the in in her neck of the woods? Or does she try to get herself into the legislature as soon as she can?
0: Uh, what do you think she will end up doing? What is the what, what route will best benefit the party? I think what route
7: best benefits the party is her getting into the House. Yeah. And that's risky. But, uh, I, you know, she's going to try to uh, trigger a love affair with the people of Chatham.
0: Uh, what about the state of the party? Many thought that uh, this would be a slam dunk just simply because of her public notoriety. Uh, obviously, the mayor of Mississauga, she's a, a great leader, got lots of charisma. Why do you think it took three ballots to to get somebody of, of such high notoriety?
7: Well, you know, when you think of it, uh, the, her, the runner-up is himself is pretty accomplished. He's also been a, he's a sitting member of the House in Ottawa, and he's, he's made a... A reputation for himself of being able to, one, work across party lines, and two, being willing to take decisions and to disagree with his own party's leadership if he felt it, it was called for. So that she had a tougher ride, and she's got a hope now that she can turn those folks around and really restore the party's well, finances for start.
0: What is her biggest challenge?
7: She's going to have to Make sure she defines herself rather than letting, which I think will will be a, a primary concern, uh, the conservatives define her. That's, I think, the challenge. If, Do you if think they it'll be... define her, then she could have a tough go.
0: Um, as you said, once the limelight wears up, then it, it's down to what the policy is. Do you think this will end up being less about... What Bonnie Crombie is, I think she's a pretty competent leader and certainly has the notoriety and the charisma to pull that off. It's the policy that is behind it. Where is the Liberal Party on that? Again, do you think they'll come closer to the center or do you think they'll stay closer to you know, the far left or the NDP?
7: Oh, I think they're going to move towards the center. I think that's her own instinct and inclination. But you know they're gonna. Ha- that means they're gonna have to spend some time working out just what their policy positions are, and how to differentiate themselves uh, from the reigning conservatives, who also have, you know, occupy a good chunk of the center.
0: How does uh, Bonnie Crombie se- uh, separate herself from the liberal parties of the past, McGuinty, Wynne, uh, who obviously were in power for? For 15 years. Uh, How how does she separate and and define herself differently from them?
7: Well, you know, the truth is, if you ask me, I would say she doesn't have to worry about that with respect to the general public. The general public has a very limited attention span, and the past is the past. I, I, you know, so, but journalists, people who want to interview her, are going to try to draw her out, try to see where she stands by comparing and contrasting her with previous leaders. Uh, If she's wise, she will avoid any such comparisons and indicate that for her, the only path is the path forward, and let's try to get something done there.
0: I'm specifically thinking of the electricity file, Wayne, where that seemed to really be the stumbling block for them. That was the straw that broke the camel's back.
7: Yeah, certainly, there are the the terrible issues with respect to to the uh, gas plants and the relocation of them and the money that went public money that got flushed down the uh, the toilet, so to speak, uh, in in order to make that happen. Uh, but again, you know, you you it's very hard to, if if you were to pull uh, Ontarians about any topic to more than two years back. The number of people who have any very specific ideas and opinions about it, I I suspect would be rather low. Uh,
0: How much runway do you think she has to do all of this? Uh, Obviously, an election is still uh, a ways away. Uh, What are your thoughts?
7: Well, as I said, I think that the first year she's really got to get out there. She's got to define herself rather than let her opponents define her. She's got to restore the financial footings of the party. She's got to get in the legislature. She's got to... Uh, a pretty big to-do list in the first 12 months.
0: What about the NDP? How do they view all of this?
7: You know, I think they're consumed by their own issues and their own, you know, so a bit of introspection, I think, is going on currently within the party, and that may continue. Uh, the, their their situation within, in, uh, uh, in relation to uh, the Hamilton MPP that has been uh, uh, booted from the caucus isn't going to go away. She isn't going away, Sarah Jama, and, and I think that's, that's going to continue to occupy them. I, I think the other is the election loss in, in Kitchener to the Greens that indicates that uh, left-of-center voters are prepared to consider the Greens rather than the NDP, and that's, that's something that could uh, be very threatening for them.
0: All three are very strong leaders uh, in the legislature, or will be. Uh, for Bonnie Crombie, what do you think that exchange is going to be like?
7: It, you're right; it's certainly going to be lively because uh, Bonnie Crombie has had a lot of experience sitting in the House in in Ottawa. She's she's sure on her on, she's solid on her feet, and I think it, it would be entertaining if if. Parties any longer bother to debate in the legislature. But as you and I know, doesn't happen much.
0: And how long do you think it will take for the NDP to get back on track prior to the Sarah Jamma situation?
7: That's a very good question. And I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, the, I don't think they've figured out yet just what, they, what, what, what their plan is going forward.
0: Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, Bonnie Crombie, the new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Wayne, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
7: Okay, you too.
0: All right, we remember when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood up in the House of Commons and uh, started uh, talking about allegations uh, in regard to India and their involvement in the assassination of a Sikh separatist on Canadian soil. Everybody just kind of went, <gasps> and our allies kind of scattered, and uh, JT was alone on an island. And many said, perhaps handled not in the appropriate manner. Fast forward, the U.S., same sort of situation. And uh, we hear that they are concerned about the same sort of thing. How does that, with a, one of their citizens, how does that change the discussion? And what did one country do differently from the other? Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well
8: yeah hi scott how are you so i'm
0: well uh thanks so much for the time phil appreciate it so what did the canada do differently than the u.s because i remember when this came out initially everybody were was wondering like why he said this now bad timing what have you and then uh, you know fast forward a few weeks later the u.s making the same sort of accusations what did one do differently from the other
8: well, if you recall, Scott, when the Prime Minister rose from the House and said that he had information, i.e. intelligence, that India was behind the assassination of Mr. Najjar in Surrey, uh, he cited American intelligence, and and more more narrowly, he cited American signals intelligence, or SIGINT, which is where I used to work with, at CSE before I worked with CSS, very sensitive information that... We really cringe when we hear this being disclosed in public because sources that get disclosed uh, disappear. But what it suggests to me, Scott, is that the Americans have been watching the Indians for quite some time, uh, both by signals intelligence and, let's face it, probably human intelligence. So they are aware of India's plans to do this to members of the Sikh diaspora, whom they see as dissidents uh, for who knows how long, and uh, share the intelligence with Canada. Unfortunately, as you and I have discussed on many occasions in the past, We have a very poor intelligence culture here in Canada. So who knows what was shared with whom and whether and whether or not it was acted upon. So I can't answer that question, but it certainly shows to me the Americans were on the ball probably longer than we were in this regard.
0: So should perhaps the prime minister or somebody here talk to them before announcing this info?
8: Oh, absolutely. As I said, uh, you know, when you work in intelligence, your sources are only as good as you can protect them. So in the case of signals intelligence, if you tell the whole world that I'm, you know, I'm monitoring Scott Thompson's emails, guess what Scott Thompson does? He changes his emails. And in the worst case scenario, if you announce that, you know, we have a human source uh, and that human source is identified by the bad guys, that human source ends up dead. So I I was, I just found the, the announcement irresponsible. Now, some have said that, you know, he's kind of justified by saying what he did because the Americans have found a similar plot and maybe to some extent that's true, but uh, the disclosure of intelligence sources is never an acceptable outcome here in Canada.
0: How does what is now happening in the U.S. affect this whole situation? Whether it's Canada in India or the U.S. in India, how does this how does this change relations with that country?
8: Great question, and I would say that the U.S. relations with India are much more important from an Indian perspective and from an American one than India-Canadian relations. Let's face it, Scott, we're we're a pretty small player on the international stage. This is why the Indian government, when, the, when Trudeau made the allegations some months ago, said, oh, whatever, prove it. And yet with the U.S. allegations, you're seeing a lot more attention paid by India because these are two major world powers. And I think that the nature of that relationship is such that It's not going to be poo-pooed by the Indian side uh, in the same way that it was when it it comes to Canada.
0: So is India cooperating with the U.S. on this then, and more so than Canada?
8: Hard to say. I mean, there's certainly been an arrogance we've seen with India ever since Modi became prime minister. It'll be 10 years in May that Modi's been the prime minister of India. We've seen a rise in Hindu extremism. We've seen a rise in Hindu ethno-nationalism. Uh, India sees itself uh, and wants to play a much greater role in the world stage uh it recognizes obviously the Americans are important but at the same time you know're they're, they're kind of playing their cards close to their chest they've been courting their Russians to some extent the Chinese to some extent so I guess the, what I would say Scott is India realizes it ha- it has some some skin in this game and it can afford to basically act in its own interest whereas like as i said with a country like canada uh, we're not at the same we're not at the same table and as a consequence india can ignore our request for any kind of assistance in the investigation
0: how does the us balance this with trade uh, aspirations because again when this came out with the prime minister uh, they were working on a lot of deals and such how do you balance trade and and this sort of
8: activity Why do you keep asking me all the difficult questions on your radio show? That's Uh, why I got you in here, pal. (laughs) (laughs) This is, yeah, this is a tough one. I I think the American administration recognizes India's power, uh, India's influence, and it's going to be careful how it plays this game because it doesn't want to push India away into the, you know, closer to the Russians or closer to the Chinese. So I I think that's going to be a huge dynamic and a huge factor in terms of how much pressure the US wants to put on India to cooperate in this investigation, because they just realize that India has an awful lot to offer on the global stage. So where does this leave the prime minister and what he said? Um, well, yeah, he can go home and say, told you so, told you so. But at the end of the day, uh, let's face it, there's a very big difference between the two cases. Uh, Mr. Najar is dead. Uh, the American Sikhs are not. The FBI and its counterparts was able to foil this plot again because I suspect they were looking at this for quite some time. So I think the other question and you 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 asked at the onset, I think, of the program, you know, why is it that the Americans were able to foil this plot and the Canadians were not? So that's the question we really should be asking at the end of the day.
0: Phil Kursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst on our ongoing relations with India and now the U.S. uh, a part of this as well. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on
5: getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson.
5: On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHMO.
0: Let's bring in Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Professor and Chair of Public and International Affairs, Dalhousie University. Lots to talk about, whether it's the Speaker of the House or uh, the election of a new leader for the Liberal Party in Ontario. Dr. Laurie Turnbull is with us now from Dalhousie University. Laurie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I'm well. I hope you're well, too.
0: Thank you so much. Let's talk first with um uh, uh, what has happened uh, closer to home with Bonnie crombie, uh, Mayor of Mississauga, now being elected uh, the leader of the Liberal Party provincially. What's the biggest challenge for her moving forward in this role?
5: Okay, so I think there's a few like one one thing is that most people in Ontario don't vote, and so or at least they didn't in the last election. And so part of the challenge for her, I think one of the big challenges is going to be getting people to to like actually lean in, like get, get people to see themselves as having a stake in this, seeing the legislature as something that's important, wanting to engage, wanting to vote in the first place. That's not easy. And I think she's got to rebuild the party. Um, she's got to get people to give money because Doug Ford and the conservatives are great at getting money. She needs to show herself as being the party, or the Liberals, as being the party that progressive voters should vote for because there's a lot of vote splitting with the NDP. She's got to get a seat in the legislature. Like she's got a she's got a good list.
0: Um, will she bring the party closer to left of center? Do you think is there a desire uh, for the party to do that? Will, will the rest follow?
5: I'm not sure about that. Because I think she's going to be sort of looking at the writing on the wall. She's going to be seeing, um, by the time the province goes for election again, there will be, you know, the point where the government is at two terms. There's always a bit of voter fatigue then. There's always a sense of people looking around for something else. So I'm not sure she has to pull the party a lot to the left to get, you know, to kind of appeal more broadly. I think it's more going to be about being clear about what the party stands for. I think she needs to go at Ford. Publicly, she needs and she's we could see that in the press conference today. She did that, but also um, needs to kind of go at the NDP in terms of the ground game, because right now the liberals are in third place. And again, they've got that vote splitting issue with the NDP. So no shortage of things to do.
0: Uh, obviously, all three of these leaders, whether it's Merritt Styles, Doug Ford, or or now Bonnie Crombie, are quite capable of handling themselves uh, in, in the legislature. Do you think this will be more about personality or policy? Uh, you mentioned that the the Liberals got to define themselves as to what they are moving forward.
5: Yeah, and I think that um, like all of the parties now are in this scenario where. The brand of the leader is oftentimes what people are actually orienting towards. The brand of the leader, I think, is more important now in politics than it's ever been. And we can see with these big brands like Ford and Trudeau, people who are well-known to people, um, it it tends to kind of take a lot of energy in politics, and it overshadows the brand of the party. And so, Bonnie Crombie is going to have to decide you know, how she wants to play that. She's got a lot of political experience. She's been an MP before. She seems to have Doug Ford's number, right? Like she was talking today about there are going to be t- attack ads on her. That's how he rolls. That's who he is. And so she's warning people about that and saying she needs people to engage and, you know, give money and let's, let's do this kind of thing. And so I'm not sure whether she's going to go at this from a let's rebuild the liberal brand or let's build up a Ronnie Crombie brand. We'll see.
0: What happens if Doug Ford end, uh, ends up being as nice to her as he is Justin Trudeau or Olivia Chow?
5: Why would he?
8: <laughs> like
5: They're not opponents. They're opponents in a different way, I guess. But like they're not the same. He's, I think he's going to feel um, quite, uh, not necessarily threatened, but he's going to feel like this is somebody who could eat into his base because of where she is, because of the experience she has. And because, you know, they'll know as well as anybody else that voter fatigue could be an issue by the time that 2026 election comes around. And so, no, I mean, at this point, I don't think he sent her congratulations. At least he hasn't done so publicly. And whereas he did with Olivia Chow, right? Like, so we shall see. We shall see what what Tony takes.
0: All right, uh, the Speaker of the House of finding himself having to apologize after appearing in a uh, a video at an Ontario Liberal event in his speaker's attire and such and, and has apologized for such. How big a deal is this? Is it?
5: Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. When I first heard all this and he sent a, sent a video and he's wearing the speaker's thing, I'm like, oh, come on. Right, like, this this is not... This, People know this is not the appropriate use of the speaker's garb. Don't do this. This is bad judgment. It is bad judgment. I think the bigger problem and the big concern for me is look at how the interactions are in the House of Commons. Like, is there anybody who's going to be able to take that speaker's chair and not Hmm. have this, this kind of swirling around them, like this obvious lack of civility, this immediate, like, I mean, yeah, he shouldn't have done this. This was... Absolutely, an unforced error. This was bad judgment. Um, I'm sure he regrets it at this point. But is this something that everybody's calling for his resignation? Like, is is that is is that where we want to go? We want to have two speakers in the run of three months. Like, it's it, I worry about whether the institution is performing in a way that, to be honest, like people are going to look at Parliament and say, yeah, these people are are geared towards solving our problems when it seems like they're more. Like, we can see the back and forth in a way that the Parliament is actually having a hard time functioning at this point.
0: Uh, I see your point about going back and forth and how many leaders do we need in this, in the space of a, a short period of time. On the other hand, does it also point to the lack of organization and just basic decorum in, in this office, whether it's the, the last one or this one?
5: Well, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I, there seems to be a kind of like real lack in trust. Right. Like he made this mistake. And, and now it's like, OK, well, that's it. You know, there's two two parties calling for his resignation. It's just like there's an immediate let's respond in the most extreme way possible. Hmm. And I don't know. Right. Like I, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know who would want this job if he leaves it. Um, it's it's not a fun time to be in the House of Commons. And, and if you take this and map it on to last week when. A conservative MP asked the minister to respond to the question in English rather than French. Althea Raj had an awesome article in Star about how this is a, a sign of what's happening in the House more than it is about English and French.
0: Dr. Laurie Turnbull with us, Professor, Chair, Public and International Affairs with Dalhousie University, talking about all things political. Laurie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
5: You too. Take
0: care. Hamilton has a new city manager. The Provincial Liberal Party has a new leader. Let's bring in Larry DeAndy, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and here now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
9: I'm very well, Scott. Thank you.
0: And your thoughts, Larry, on Bonnie Crombie, uh, mayor of Mississauga, I guess until the end of the year, uh, now the new liberal leader of the Provincial Liberals?
9: Well, Scott, there seems to be some excitement, at least uh, among. uh, uh, political, uh, liberal political supporters uh, for, uh, for Ms. Crombie uh, and uh, her leadership of the party. Uh, she uh, has, um, you know, some, some experience both as a federal member of parliament. Uh, she's been uh, the mayor now uh, for several terms of, of a large municipality in Ontario, a vote-rich municipality in Ontario, uh, and seems to have done very well with that and has just won uh, a a contest that's been very uh, many months in the making. Uh, So uh, there's uh, hope that she'll be able to pull the party together and uh, do better at the polls the next time out.
0: Is the party together? uh, Many were surprised that this went for three ballots, considering her public notoriety. She is certainly the most popular candidate.
9: Right. Um, So the party went uh, to a uh, one-person, one-vote system. Uh, sold um, hundreds of thousand new members, uh, memberships. Um, but uh, all of the four candidates who were very good candidates, I went to some of the sessions to listen to them. Um, they all had the opportunity to sell memberships and pull out the vote. So it wasn't a delegated convention uh, where a group of people get together in a hothouse atmosphere and uh, over a weekend and decide who the leader will be. It was essentially, um, you know, the more memberships you can sell and the more votes you can get out, which is even more important, uh, you can win. So I wasn't surprised that it was close, uh, because I know that all of them were getting, uh, were, were getting out there to sell memberships. Um, And so I was actually anticipating that it would go um, more than three ballots um, because of the nature of the vote where you could rank people. Um, And so the fact that she won um, in three ballots didn't surprise me. And the fact that it was close didn't surprise me for those factors.
0: Uh, Many have described her as closer to center. Do you think she'll try to bring the party closer to left of center?
9: Well, I hope so. <laughs> I'm saying, perhaps betraying my own mm-hmm. um, centrist views about about politics. Um, I think that um, the party um, under McGinty was maybe center right, uh, un- under uh, Premier Wynne, it was certainly center left. Uh, and I think it you know you win elections when you're in the middle because you can you can harvest vote from Uh, Those on both sides of you, when you're on the extreme, you tend to alienate um, some people, as certainly happened provincially for the liberals um, and may happen um, federally for the liberals. Who knows? Uh, So uh, I think a centrist position is a good place to be in.
0: I've had this discussion, Larry, with a, a few academics, and and you know, and you know, my old spiel about it's become too divisive. We got to get back to the center on either side, blah blah blah. Uh, and and many have said they're not sure that the voters have an appetite for going back to the center. Do you think that's the case, or do you think uh, you think the, the center has a future, or do you think uh, whether it's center left or center right, or or we're sort of stuck in this extreme politics that we're in?
9: Well, we seem certainly to be um, in a in a world. Now that's polarized politically. But who's taken us to those polar opposites? It's the politicians themselves, whether you look at what's happening you know, in, in the United States or, or in, in other countries that have elected populist uh, uh, folks. Look at what's happening federally in our own system with the Conservative Party uh, having gone uh, extreme uh, right as well. So it's the politicians who are leading the way. I think it's exactly- interesting,
0: though, Larry. You're talking about the opposition there, as opposed to the man that's actually ruling the the party. Do you not think that the that Prime Minister Trudeau is just as populist, but coming from the left as others on the extreme well, right are?
9: Well, I would make this argument, though, Scott. And and you're right. And a few moments ago, I did say that federally, I think we've gone uh, to the left side. But understand that federally, we are in a minority government, and if he wanted to survive, uh, he had to look for allies. And the only ally that uh, that he saw who would work with him was on the left. So, yes, the, the, the policies have been on the left side, but not because um, they wanted to. Um, the party wanted it to be that way. But they were forced to be that way or, or
0: Well, they weren't forced, Larry. They decided to make that deal. They could have run it, you know, they could have run into another election and tried again. Yes, I mean nobody twisted did, their arm yeah. to join the NDP.
9: But he did try that. And and people were criticizing him for having gone to that election to get a majority government. He tried to do that. The voters rejected that idea and gave us the minority government again. So the the only question that he had before him was, Do I want to govern? Or do I want to perpetually go into an election or or give up government? He decided he wanted to govern. Now, the voters are going to have a chance to to, to express their opinion about that in the next couple of years if it lasts that long. But but it's way different from viscerally believing that you should be on one side, polar opposite or the other, uh, or politically making that calculus that that's the only way that you can govern if you can find sort of that coalition. Informal as it is, uh, with with the party on the left, and so you know that's 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 what he, he chose to do.
0: All right, let's talk about the new city manager, Marnie Clucky from Niagara on the Lake. What is the role of the city manager? How difficult is that job?
9: Well, it, it's it's a, a crucial role. Uh, it's a very important role. It's the chief bureaucrat for the city, and so um, you know you've got the mayor who's the elected. Um, a representative of the people, uh, who, um, along with her council in this case, sets policies, and the chief bureaucrats and her team implement those policies. And it's the city manager's job to make sure that there's alignment between the political side and the bureaucratic side to get things done. And so it's it's crucial. Uh, but let me point out that what's different about this situation now, uh, since the province um, came up with the strong mayor's uh, protocol, uh, the city manager essentially works for one person. Whereas before, the city manager was hired by the council and could only be fired by the entire council, not the mayor. Uh, in this case, the city manager uh, ha- was hired by the mayor. And can be fired by the mayor. So the city manager responds to one person. Now, to her credit, the current mayor uh, Andrea did use a um, a, um, a committee <clears throat> made up of counselors and even some community members uh, to apparently vet uh, the applicants for the position, uh, and then she and advise her as to who the good candidates were. Uh, and then she made the decision based on that advice. So I'm assuming um, Andrea Horvath took the advice that was provided by the committee, but she didn't need to. Uh, and and the city manager now, I'm sure, understands that she works for the mayor. Uh, and so that it'll be interesting to see how that works out over the next number of years in terms of in terms of uh, what's implemented, how it's implemented what the mayor's position uh, on these implementation matters might be. So it's just a different dynamic. However, the role still stays the same, which is that you've got to have a team of people around you, uh, general managers uh, of various, uh, various large departments with huge, uh, in some cases, uh, uh, you know, huge budgets, um, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases. Uh, and uh, and you have to implement policy as set by the elected council, um, and uh, that uh, will that will be uh, uh, the constant in what the city manager does.
0: Larry Deany with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, talking about Hamilton's new city manager and the Liberal Party's new leader. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, rearrangements uh, in the uh, in the TICAT offices. Uh, obviously, Coach O, not Coach, but still within the organization. Your thoughts? Too many, uh, too few trying to do too much here? What are your thoughts?
1: So now that he's a GMO, can you still call him that? Or does that sound weird now? That uh, That's a good point. <laughs> um, you know, let's hope because we, and we've said this many, many times because in say in the Bob Young era, there have been, this will be the ninth head coach in the Bob Young era. He bought yeah. the team in the off season after 2003. So going into his 20th season, that's nine head coaches I've. I was trying today to figure out how many general managers or director of player personnel or whatever there have been, I've lost track of that. It's just not worked. Whatever is going on just hasn't worked. And every other team has made it work and the Ticats are still looking for that great cup. And, you know, I, I think Orlando Steinauer is a good football guy. I think he's a good football coach. I think Ken Austin was a good football coach. I think some of the other guys before him. We're good football coaches. It just hasn't worked. So maybe this is now going to be the magical combination that will make things go. But at some point, Scott, and I don't know if we're there yet, although I suspect for many people, we will be at some point, I'm sure the question has to be, why doesn't it ever work here with good football people in position? What is the reason that this never can seem to come together here?
0: That, of course, was my next question, which, you know, you don't have the answer to. Uh, whenever this happens, it's a bad season or, or they don't get the results they want. Uh, you know, we see adjustments on the field. We see players, uh, coaches, coaching staff being adjusted. Uh, is it somewhere between the coach and the owner that these changes need to be made?
1: Uh You mean front office, higher up executive?
0: Because that's, you know, that seems to be the constant here.
1: So the, the only way to know the answer to that is to have someone who is behind the scenes saying if it is in fact the case that there is meddling going on or something else. And I don't know the answer to that. that. That's, that's something that people in the front office would be able to tell you, but they're generally, even when you're let go, even when you're fired is one of the, one of the unique things about sports, when you're fired as a coach, by and large, you don't come out and eviscerate the people who just fired you because you want to get hired somewhere else and you don't yeah. want to have the reputation of a of a guy who's going to just blast the people who run the place that that's mm-hmm. not someone who becomes an enticing hire. So often people just keep their mouth shut. So the answer to the question is, I don't know, I don't know, but somewhere along the way, it's, it's re, it looks like somewhere in the mix, something just for whatever reason, doesn't click here. And again, if you were bringing in a bunch of stiffs all the time. Who, you know, if, if, if you had an owner who was clinically insane and was going out and, fi- and hiring someone off the street corner, you would say, okay, well, it makes sense. I mean, these are people who don't know what they're doing. You've brought in people who know what they're doing. They are good football people and they can't get over the hump. And so there's, there's a million questions and until they finally win, those questions are going to persist. Now, can Orlando Steinauer, assuming he's the guy who's making the choice on the new coach, who's going to be announced shortly, uh, is, is this the connection, as I say, is this the combo that's going to finally going to be able to make it to work? Is, is Orlando Steinauer, now that he doesn't have to think about coaching, is he the guy who has the brilliant personnel mind, who's going to be able to say, I know exactly the pieces now that we have to get And uh, We'll see, we'll see. But to this point in the Bob Young era, it has not worked someone must know
0: because as you said they're all quality people or certainly have the pedigree the resumes to be there so it's not like they're bringing in people that aren't qualified so if it's not that is it a culture is it well, an atmosphere a is it a lack
1: of positivity is it just a bad room that's uh, so there is not a single player who is playing for the ticats now who was playing for the ticats when bob young bought the team in fact, it was funny because I bumped into a couple of guys recently and uh, they would hate me saying this, but they're getting up there. I mean, there's some guys that it's been a while now. I mean, you're getting guys who are now into their 50s, mid-50s who were playing when Bob Youngs None of them are still on the team. So I don't think you can point and say, well, it's the players because there's been – endless combinations of different players. There's been different leaders. There's been different guys in key positions. There's been free agents who've come in. There've been guys who've been brought back. It's, it is, put it this way. If there is a commonality, it would mean that some common denominator is having an impact, not just on the organization, but on the football operations in some way. And again, uh, we can all sit here and say, well, you know, I think it's so and so. I think it's so. I, I don't know the answer to that question. We all can have suspicions, but it's ju- we're, we're eventually we'll find out because eventually somebody will say, "You know mm-hmm. what? It doesn't work," and here's why. But thus far, uh, the people who have left this organization, who are still or who still work there, don't say. What they think is really the issue. They say, oh, I got to fail. We weren't good enough. I wasn't good enough. It's got to be better. And that's, well, they're busy. They're busy winning great cups in other cities. That's what. <laughs> well, there is that, isn't there? I mean, they do go and they do win elsewhere. And I mean, how many, how many guys who have played for this team? Now it's a league that has a lot of moving parts. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That, that's going to be a natural thing, but still, yeah, every year we do have the story or five of, hey, that longtime tie cat now getting his Grey Cup championship. Okay, yeah. thank you. Let's have one here. Scott Radley with us, host of The Scott
0: Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great one, Scott. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast.
1: You can listen to the show live, weekday afternoons from 3 to 6, on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word.
1: You ever hear the phrase history repeats itself? Well, Cats just did what they always do whenever they cannot win a
8: Grey Cup. They rearranged the locker room.